I'm Michelle Olivier, and you're listening to Hey, I Want Your Job, the podcast that looks at amazing jobs and what it takes to get them. Welcome to Hey, I Want Your Job. And this week, I don't know, Lemore, I might want your job. We'll have to discuss further. <laughs> um, I may actually be a little bit jealous and yeah, it, definitely intrigued, definitely intrigued by the possibility. So with that being said, Lemore, what is your job title? Hi, Michelle. First of all, thank you for having me. Yes, it's my pleasure. The cool thing is that I don't care about the titles anymore. <laughs> I'm done with that. So if you want to ask me my title, I'll say I help women excel and achieve their goals in their career. And me, women in tech predominantly. So that's my focus. I think that's amazing. So let's start there because I work with mostly tech companies, mostly startups. Um uh, from a, a people ops perspective and talent perspective. And uh, one of the things that I wind up saying a lot is that titles are cheap. And I mean that in every way. So if you have a candidate that you really want to hire and they're really excited for you to call them VP, call them VP. Why do you give a shit? Like within certain bounds, right? Like who cares? Call them a wombat wrangler if that's going to make them feel better. And at the same time, when I'm talking to candidates, my answer is don't get hung up on the job title, get hung up on the job, get hung up on the opportunity, get hung up on the money, but let the title go. I think the exception to that is that you do need to have a title that lets the outside world have some idea who they're dealing with when they're talking to you. So there is a difference between when a candidate gets an interview it get, knows they're booking an interview with me as CPO or head of talent versus agency recruiter, right? Like those are different situations. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I think in general, titles are overrated. That's my rambling thoughts on it. What do you think about titles um, in tech in particular? Yeah. So, on one hand, yes, who gives a damn? <laughs> but. But okay. titles are important. You cannot ignore that, especially if you try to build your career in tech and you want people to perceive you as who you are, appreciate you for what you do, and you want to move up the ladder, then you do need to worry about a title. Okay. The title should not define you. That should not be the sole reason why you want to do things. But you want to make sure that your title reflects what you do. It is important because as you want to move to a different job or progress in the company, you need to have a title that will reflect your contributions. I, I think that that's smart and very fair. So one of the things that I get asked a lot around that is how do you think of and, and kind of place the differences between director manager and head of or and potentially vice president like especially in startups in tech 
those things get used almost interchangeably. Some people yeah. put very specific weight on different ones. What is your thought? What, what, which, what does each of those things mean and, and which, which parts of those things are important? Yeah, so I think it really varies on companies. In general, manager is a more operational execution, execution-based, execution-focused role, uh, typically responsible for individual contributors, one or, or more teams, one or more product. Um, and most of their day job is making sure people are happy doing their work and executing. And they have some strategic part of for sure, but mostly it's around execution. As you move up the ladder, you turn to be more strategic in what you do. So as you move to a director role, the day-to-day -day doesn't need to happen solely by you. You have usually people that report to you that do that. You have managers that are responsible on the execution on the day-to-day, -day, and you can focus more about strategy, about thinking about what's next, about creating a roadmap even if there is no clarity. So creating certainty in times of uncertainty. As you move up, um, I haven't been, been a VP, but uh, uh, VP at some companies tend to be, unfortunately, very political. It doesn't have to be. It really depends on the company. Uh, where you work with more other function leaders. So a director role may work mostly within a division of an organization, let's say engineering or product, yeah, they still work with others. But as you get to a VP role, your role becomes more strategical and working with other functions of the organization and seeing a bigger picture, looking more holistically at a company rather than just at your department or function. I, so I, I think that that, matches very closely with um, how I tend to define things because I tend to say that a manager is exactly what you said. So it is a somebody who oversees the tactical operations of day-to-day -day individual contributor behaviors. And then a director creates the tactical response to a strategic initiative. And then an executive sets the strategic initiative. Um, and that's mm -hmm. kind of where I define those three things. And it sounds very closely in line kind of to what you're mm -hmm. saying there. Yeah, and obviously different companies do it slightly different. They call it different things, but I think that in general, like a true executive is a strategic operator. Yes, like the that's for sure. It's not, they're very disinterested. I mean, they're interested in the tactical because it impacts but like their job is the strategic and then like going yeah. to the director level is the um other. so one of the challenges i find as a woman in technology as i've moved up that ladder is that when it was at the manager level so as a tactician right it was there was so much emphasis on the interpersonal and the emotive, right? Like, oh, you have to be nice. They have to like you. Whereas other managers who were men in particular, that was never a pressure. They had to be effective. They had to have, you know, good 
tactical recommendations, but whether or not you wanted to be their friend or have a beer with them was completely irrelevant. And then, um, then the other part for me at least was there's a big focus on appearance, much more so than for men that, you know, women's, how you dress and did you wear makeup? I literally had executives um, chastise me for not wearing makeup into a meeting with clients, like, um, how dare you not? Um, and then as I moved up, it was about being too forceful with my opinions and, you know, oh, it's okay to have those big picture, but now you're too fluffy, right? Like if you think too strategic or too big picture, even if you're in a blue sky meeting, you get accused of being like the fluffy woman in the room. And it it's really, it's been frustrating for me. What is your experience with the women that you work with? Is that, am I typical? Is that atypical? What is your thought? I had slightly different experiences. I don't know if to say it's typical or not. I really think it depends. In general, the more the up you move in the ladder, the lonelier it gets. That's my experience, first of all, because you see less and less women there, right? I mean, managers, you still see some directors, your VP and, you know, head of or whatever, even less so. Mm-hmm. So you feel more lonely. Uh, about being liked, I used to want to be liked, but it was more about me rather than others expecting of me. I used to want to be liked, but as I matured as a manager, I understood that I don't need to. I don't need to be liked. I need to be respected, even if people didn't like decisions I made. And I didn't feel that someone expected me as a manager to be liked. I do think that there is some expectation of being respected and and creating some connection with people who report to you. But I I didn't feel like I needed people to like me or someone expected me. But it it could be that it it is about the organization culture also. So when you are coaching women um, and helping them with the progression through technology, what are the areas that you do focus on then? What are the things that you you find that come up over and over again um, that you wind up helping with? Yeah, I think the the thing that comes the most is in confident, being in confident, in confident in their abilities and what is what is possible for them, if they are doing the right thing, if the decisions they made are right. Confidence is the the number one thing that that we are working on typically, and with each woman it can be in different areas, right? But uh, that's that's I would say the number one. And. You know, I think that one of the things that is really well documented is this idea that, you know, we should have like a sister solidarity that as we go up the the chain that we're always reaching down to elevate other women and we know that that's not what winds up happening. Do you, like from your experience, what you see, is that because it's lonely? Is it because of the imposter syndrome and the lack of confidence or what is your what is your experience and what causes that maybe we don't know where to find those women i mean if if it gets lonely right i mean and and where you work there are not many then you need to find them you need to put an extra effort to network and to find like-minded 
so you don't feel like you're alone in this. Um, that's where I find mentorship to be very helpful. I know it's not like peer, it can be peer mentorship, but in general, when you find a mentor who is like-minded, who is a woman, who's been there, done that, it really helps, helps you feel like you're not alone, like you have someone who believes in you and you can share your struggles with. Um, yeah, I think that it it is always nice to have somebody who's kind of been through it a bit. I know I... I have, I'm very lucky to have a strong network of other women in leadership, in technology, in people roles where we're all fighting <laughs> the same fight every day, it seems like. But it, I think that it does make a really big difference. And I think that, you know, we're, we're getting better about, in general, having the, you know, a society and a culture that says it is not just okay, but probably a really good idea to reach out to the other women and help pull them up and help bring other people through that hole in the glass ceiling that you've managed um, to punch. And so I think that I like to think that it, that that piece of it is changing a little bit, especially in some of the larger organizations. Um, but tell me more about your program and how you, how do you work with your, your clients? Cause you, you work with women in technology to help support them and and help them deal with you know being in a man a male dominated industry. So what does that engagement look like? Is it on a one to one basis? Is it group settings? Would how does it work? Yeah, so I usually do a one on one just because it's very personable mm -hmm. and very specific to the woman I'm working with. We start typically with trying to map where she's at today and where she wants to be. Because if you don't know where you want to be, and a lot of times we're not conscious enough about our goals. Mm -hmm. I just had a conversation today with someone who realized that she wanted to do something different and she may want eventually to change a job because her job is not fulfilling what she, where she wants to be. So it's really being intentional about where you want to be in a year and in three to five years. And then figuring out, okay, what do I need in order to get there? It could be some things that I need to do right now in my current job, and it could be some, some things I need to do more strategically, build networks and build skills that I need and so forth. So we work towards looking kind of more high level about where they want to be and then focusing more on the, I would say, sh relatively short term, like six months, something like that of what do they want to achieve? And we work on those goals. Things may change, but usually they don't change dramatically. So my experience, and so I'm a coach as well as being in Talanac, and one of the things that we tell people all the time is stop asking, where do you see yourself in five years? Because it's so overwhelming of a question and not particularly helpful in an interview setting, right? Like, I, why do you care? <laughs> um, but my experience is that people really struggle with that level of kind of long range, big picture. Like if you say, where do you, where do you want to be in five years? So I, I don't know. How do you, what tools do you use? How do you help coach people to having a functional answer to that? Yeah, so it's okay. If people don't know, that's fine. 
uh, it's just kind of provoking them to start thinking about it and not being reactive. Because that's the danger. If you don't think about it, you, you become reactive and you let, let things happen for you. I'm working with them to try to figure out, first of all, what are their passions? What are the things that interest them? Mm-hmm. And what are the things that don't interest them? The other aspect, I'm working with them in figuring out their strength and asking, asking others for feedback and with their inner circle and also at work to get some feedback about things that they are good at and things that maybe they need to work on. And then the third thing I'm trying to work with them is figuring out where they bring the most value. The combination of those three is usually where they should focus their career. Okay. And, and I find that when, when someone starts to think about their career in, in those lenses, they may not know what happens in five years. I don't know what will happen with me in five years, but it will help them to figure out what's the right path for them, at least for now. And, and things can change, but that, that really helps. So what was it that helped you define your path then? How did you, what was the moment where you were like, I really want to be an engineer? Um, and then what was the subsequent moment where you were like, I am now done being with engineering yeah. and something else. What were those moments for you? So I think about the, about the beginning of my career, I didn't know what I wanted. I just knew, okay, I'm good at math. I'm good at science. I tried programming uh, course before signing up for university. It sounded interesting. So kind of made my decision that that's what I want to do. Didn't think so too much about it. Um, I think the, the, the turning point was uh, when I was working at Sun Microsystems, I worked there for many years. And uh, at some point I was promoted to a staff engineer. And that was the moment that I started thinking about my career more strategically. Uh, because back then it, it was actually not that common to have a technical path and a management track. And Sun did have it, right? So the turning point was uh, to become a staff engineer versus an engineering managers. Those were two equivalent kind of roles in a different path. One was more technical and one was managerial. And when I was promoted to a staff engineer, well, I was excited that I was promoted. I started thinking, oh, but is it really what I want? And the answer was no. <laughs> I didn't want to, to become a senior staff. I didn't want to continue becoming an expert in a specific field and, and, and just being an individual contributor and learning more and digging more. I really wanted to work with people. I wanted to lead others. So that's kind of what was my turning point. It took me several years until I was able actually to shift. I wish back then I had a mentor who can help me get there sooner, but that was the turning point for me. Okay. And then to, and then for the, the exit, um, to leave all of that behind, what was Mm. that point? Well, it took me several years, to be honest with you, because I felt, I mean, I was progressing, still working, progressing in my career and succeeding, but I felt inside of me that that's not what I'm meant to be. But I didn't know what to do with that feeling. Uh, I just continued. 
And I guess I needed to make a drastic change in my life in order to decide also to make a change in my career. So what happened was I used to live in the U.S. and then we moved back here to Israel two and a half years ago. And that's where I started. I decided that that's a great opportunity because I had to change jobs anyway. I couldn't continue working where, where I was because of time zone and all that. So I said, okay, that's an opportunity to make a change also in my career. Okay. So, I mean, I think that's really interesting as well. So you, you know, you worked in the U.S., which has a very distinct technical culture um, and every other kind of culture, but you're not originally from here. And then you went back um, home to Israel. So tell me a little bit about those, like those differences. Is there a big difference in the work culture between one and the other from your experience? Or is it, you know, do you find that it's pretty much one-to-one? -one? Uh, it's hard to say because, to be honest, I mean, things have probably changed quite dramatically since I left. But what I remember that one of the things that uh, I was very afraid of was working from an office because I started working remotely in 2016. I moved back just before the pandemic. Back then, it was really not, um, not common to work from home in Israel, everyone were working in an office and the working hours were usually starting late, staying late, working US, you know, with the US in the evenings. That's what I remembered from before I left. When in the US, it was more, first of all, I was working remote and I loved that. And also the work they ended five, six or whatever, and, and it ended and you didn't have to do anything at night. You didn't have to do weekends and all that for the most part. And in Israel, it wasn't that case, the case always. And I was really not looking forward to go back to that work culture. And again, I think things change here as well. Obviously, remote is now very, very common, more hybrid than remote, I would say. Companies still want to see people, but they're allowing people to work from home, some more than others. But it's always a challenge here working with U.S., that people have to, to work in the evenings, nights, sometimes, you know, and, and the working week is different here, Sunday to Thursday versus Monday to Friday, the rest of the world. So it also impacts a lot of times. That's so work interesting. Schedule. Yeah, it's so interesting that your experience in the U.S. was that um, work culture was much more nine to five because that is definitely like, again, you know, your background is much more working with larger companies, you know, Oracle, Sun, yeah. um, VMware. Um, I spend a lot of time assuring people that they're going to work not more than a 50 hour week <laughs> for the kind of roles that I'm working on. And it's very much not the perception of the culture um, that um, that it would be, um, a, a, you know, a nine to five here. So that I find that really interesting because I think that that's something that um, when I'm helping coach organizations as well as individuals, a huge part of what I do is about boundary setting and how to actually make sure that you don't accidentally tell your staff that they need to be working a 65 hour week. Um, and, you know, I wind up saying things like, if you're in crunch more than 20% of the time, it's not crunch. You're just understaffed. <laughs> and so, um, that's just absolutely like fascinating to me the more because that's so far removed um from you know, my experience and the the work they do. I wonder if it 
has to do with like the specific organizations that you were with. Um, I know Sun always had a really good reputation for being nine to five and you were there for a very long time. Um, yeah, but- actually when I was in Sun, I was working, uh, I was working basically from morning to <laughs> midnight sometimes oh, because really? I was working from East. The thing was, if you worked in the US, that may have been your experience, but because I was working in Israel and I was working a lot with California, which is a 10 hour difference. Yeah. yeah. Then I, a lot of times had calls uh, in the evening or night in the U S again, I cannot generalize. It depends on the company, mm-hmm. but I found that more, more than in Israel, people respected your personal space. Um, usually people didn't re- try to reach out to you off hours or weekends. I was on call, right? I mean, there were times I was on call and when you're on call, obviously you are yeah. reachable. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but for the most part, I felt that there are more boundaries and more respect to your personal life than I felt here. Interesting. So that, that's fascinating to me already um so we can't really talk about women in business or technology or otherwise without also talking about being a mom and the impact Mm -hmm. that that has one of the things that i think makes it very difficult for women in business is that there is for from your 20s until like your mid to late 40s this expectation that at any given moment you're just going to, you know, disappear and go make babies. And that's one of the reasons that we have to be mindful of, you know, potentially promoting, et cetera. Um, I hope that that's starting to change. I have some seen some indications that it might be, but it is, it is tough. And it is tough for women who are the primary caregivers for children um, to be able to always be on those calls like, those production calls that are right before, you know, and in the sprint cycle and you really are in crunch or what have you. Um, how do you, when you're coaching women, how do you help them work with those issues and, and work with the, you know, realities of perceptions of motherhood and then the realities of motherhood in the, in the workplace? Yeah. And I think things have changed since, since, you know, and my oldest is 18. So since 18 years ago, I think she thinks it's changed. First of all, we have way more flexibility due to COVID. I mean, one of the good things that happened, we have way more flexibility, um, which allows us to work different hours. We don't have to be nine to five. We can be more flexible with the hours we work, attend to our kids when we need to, and then go back to work work from home, which allows more flexibility. Sometimes it's harder when you have little ones. I have a three and a five-year-old. Trust me, I'm yeah. aware. <laughs> it's hard when you have small ones. Mine are not that young anymore, so it's much more manageable. And uh, and I think also the workplaces understand the need for women to have some time with their babies. Many companies allow maternity leave that are several months, even for fathers uh, to take some time off. 
So I, I do think that there is a re- realization, uh, especially in the U.S., right? In Israel, it's different because actually Israel is has been better than the U.S. in that aspect. We do have maternity leave, which is 14 weeks for one kid. I have twins, so I, <laughs> for twins, you get 17 weeks. This is paid by the government. So you get paid for maternity yeah. leave and, and no one can no one can lay you off. Even if you extend and you take longer leave without pay, you cannot lose your job. It's mandatory. It's illegal to do that. So actually, I think in Israel, things are actually in that aspect, not that bad. But in the US, it also has changed a lot. As I said, my advice usually to women is to really do what makes sense for them, for their family. I'll be honest with you. There are times I was considering whether to have a baby or not based on my career. Eventually I chose family, chose, you know, to do what I wanted for my family, but it shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't have to choose. If you want to plan to expand your family, do so. Yeah. It is hard. And I, it, things are starting to change. Like you're seeing more and more, um, examples of better paternity, um, leave, but even still like the best ones you're looking at maybe 14, maybe 16 weeks, nothing like what you would get anywhere else in the world. Um, so even our examples of like the good guys are behind the statutory requirements for other places. And it, I think it is, it is still a major concern. And I know that there are women in technology who feel and have, I have seen and heard them being dismissed because, well, they, oh, they miss meetings because their kids are sick or, well, we, you know, don't bother considering so-and-so because she's going to have soccer practice or she's got this, that, and the other with the kids. And it's just like, we still don't have the balance, I think, between who are the primary caregivers for children, that as long as caring for our children is women's work, um, then it's going to be, it's going to be a fight to have equal say uh, in the, in the office, I think. Yeah, I think this is something that us as a society have to change. And I think women has to, to lead that change at their homes, right? With their partner. Women is not the only caregiver at home. And there is a partner, <laughs> sometimes, not always. Yeah, but hopefully. <laughs> sometimes yeah. there's a partner and the partner should take equal part. And it shouldn't be just the woman and the mom who needs to to do all the kids' duty, right? Uh, the soccer practices and what have you. So hopefully, and I really believe that that has to, to begin with us. Mm. Um, but working in a place that don't respect that regardless what you mentioned like oh she's a mom oh okay dismisses you know her because of that it's you should consider if you want to work there to be honest with you and i hear you but i think also like there's a big perception that that that's the norm and so if you're not going to work somewhere that feels that way are you just going to not work because if everywhere um acts that way what choices do you have? I think that a lot of women feel trapped and choiceless in terms of dealing mm-hmm. with employers that are not supportive um, of women's issues. 
Well, uh, I can share at least my experience with DigitalOcean was not that way. My calendar was always transparent. If I had a kid meeting at school at 10 a.m., I would put that on my calendar. If I had to pick up my kids at 3 p.m., I would put that on my calendar. Everything was transparent. And I never, never got a comment about that. So there is hope. There are places that actually care. Maybe, maybe that's the exception. I don't know because obviously I have my own personal experiences. But I just want to share that there is hope. There are places who care and who really understand that there need to, and again, it goes both ways, not just for women, but for parents in general, they understand they need to spend time on things that are important. If you have a meeting with a teacher at school, because you have some challenges and you need, and what can you do that the school is open during the day and you have to go to school and take a break from work and return later, then yes, employers should, should, understand that so one of the um challenges that i've been having recently is that i have an, uh, a client that i work with um whose engineering team all men they didn't set out to make that happen it's just where it fell and the lead we are hiring a new position and the leadership is very very adamant that our recruiting needs to be very focused on women because we need more voices. We need that within the team. And consistently, candidates ask the question, which I'm glad, right? Like, hey, it seems like when you were talking about the team, all of those people had he, him pronouns. <laughs> hmm. Would I be the first woman? And, you know, how does that work? I know what I say to try to let them know that this is a safe space and that this would be a place where they would have a voice and be valued and there'd be opportunity. But I would love to hear from you what advice, if you were coaching the candidate, what advice would you give them in terms of making sure for an organization that did not have representation that um, that it was going to be a, a good and healthy place um, for women in technology? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and by the way, I had challenges like that. Like when you described, I was trying to hire women and my team was predominantly men. It was very hard. Women weren't hesitant, you know, were hesitant to join a place that, and rightfully so. That's yep. totally understandable. Uh, I think, first of all, being transparent with the employer, with the hiring manager, with uh, the, the recruiter, whoever you have been in touch with. And, and potentially asking to meet the team, right? To, to get an opportunity to meet the team and talk with some of the team members. Just try to get to know them a little bit better. Obviously you cannot ask them, oh, how do you treat women or whatever? But, but try to get people a little bit, to know them a little bit. And to ask them about themselves and, and get to know them so you can feel more comfortable. And if it's the right career move, for, for that woman, I would say, why should you limit yourself? Why should you limit yourself in your career just because you're a minority? Uh, you can ask for support at the workplace to have a sponsor, except for your manager, right? To have someone who sponsors you, someone who is responsible in the company to make sure that you're treated well, that you get equal opportunities, that can be another another thing that you can ask, and that sponsor can be maybe 
even an exec at a company. And if the company cares about diversity and they want to change, they will support you. I think that, um, I think that's really good advice, the idea of finding a sponsor or somebody else within the organization. I do think that, you know, it is a specific kind of challenge for companies who didn't realize and have now, because, you know, we all make mistakes and we're trying to educate people that this is important and this is an issue. And so let's say you get educated and you're like, oh, shit, I'm educated, but I can't magic up women. One of the solutions that I have heard organizations come up with, and I have have seen some of them do, is to actually invite women from outside the organization to be part of the selection group. So part of the interview panel, et cetera, so that there is representation in the process, even if while they're trying to get representation within the organization. How do you feel about that? What do you, what is your thought on that? I have some mixed feeling about it. On one hand, it's great. On the other hand, it's not reflecting the reality, right? I mean, yes, you bring some some people from the outside, but then when the woman joins, she's by herself, basically. Yeah, and I, I think that that is, that's always kind of my take on it. It's like, well, how how informative are they going to be to the process if they don't know your company and they don't know your culture, et, et cetera? And I agree, there's kind of, there's a feeling of, of sort of misrepresenting the the organization that way. I'm a big fan of calling a duck a duck. And so every time for these companies, when I'm trying to hire, I'm like, I'll be straight up with you. You're gonna be the first woman on the tech team. And I can understand that that might make you nervous. Here's what I can promise you. It's not a boys club. You will not be mansplained to. If you are, I am head of talent and I shall ride in on my charger. <laughs> and deal with it yeah and so i you know i try to use you know to kind of speak to the elephant in the room for them um Mm -hmm. but i but not all recruiters are me um and not all you know that's not always something that's there and i think that i have seen because some women have tried to broach it before i had a chance to do that and I've seen varying degrees of success in trying to be subtle about it or gentle about it or what have you. And I think it is really tricky. And I guess for me, I always, I'm so direct (laughs) that I can't imagine not just being like, hey, what's with all of the guys, really? Um, But I know that other people have different personalities and different ways of approaching things. And I think that that can be one of the challenges is that if you, especially as a woman where society has told us to qualify our speech and, you know, not stand up to authority directly, but to find ways of subterfuge, et cetera, that, um, that it can be challenging to even kind of broach those conversations. Yeah. I think what companies can do start with leadership start up the chain and start building a diverse group of leaders. It starts from the top. And when you show that, think about a woman that, let's say an engineer who starts someplace and there is an executive that is a woman 
that executive can assure her, you know, that yes, there, there is a place for women at the top. So I would even say for companies, prioritize leadership roles and executive for women and, my, and, and different, you know, underrepresented groups. Show that you're diverse at the executive level, because think about it. And it was something for me that was frustrating a lot, a lot, a lot of times that, yes, maybe I've seen some, some women in engineering, some women in management, but as, as I looked up at the top, it was all white men club. Yeah. And, you know, I have an organization I'm working with now that the top is a bunch of white guys. Yeah. They can't help being a bunch of white guys. And like, we really want, we need some women. We need some color. We need some, we know we need a diversity yeah. of, of voices on our team. And so we're, we have a couple of, you know, senior leadership roles, director level roles that we're working with, uh, you know, to fill. And, but it's the same conversation at that level as well, right? Like, uh, this seems like I would be the only woman. <laughs> yes, but I think it's an easier, it's an easier conversation. Because when you are um, hired for an executive or some higher leadership role, well, you should already build your character, hopefully, right? I mean, your confidence in yourself, you, you reach to some level. Um, it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's easier. At least that's my perspective. I can see, like, I agree that by the time you're an exec, you're a lot more comfortable in your professional skin. You, you know, yeah. you've worn it for longer. You are a lot more sure of yourself or you should be. Um, but I think at the same time, nobody wants to be a token. And I think that there's always the concern that like, oh, it's 2022 and a startup that has only guys is an issue. So here I am, they're hiring me as the token woman in talent or marketing because that's where women tend to manage to be mm. at the top of an organization. Um, and so, I mean, I think that it's a legit concern. And Absolutely. I think it's, I find it really hard. Like, I guess I always feel like when I'm answering their questions that I'm being a hundred percent genuine. And I know that I wouldn't be working with the organization if I thought that it was a bunch of mansplainers or that this was a token hire or what have you. But I also know that the woman that I'm interviewing has known me for five seconds <laughs> and that I have a vested interest in, in having you know, her move forward if she's a great candidate. So I, I would be suspicious if I was her. Um, and I just, it's so difficult and I don't know what the great answer is. Like ultimately everybody involved has to take a leap of faith, right? Like women have to be willing to take the leap of faith and be like, okay, if I get there and they just want to treat me as the token, then I'll leave and go find somewhere not. But if they're at least willing to acknowledge there needs to be a woman in the room, that's ahead of where we were 30 years ago. Yeah. And another thing you can do is uh, to ask for support because assuming you're joining as a non only woman in all men leaders, you can ask for a coach or for a mentor that the company will invest in you. Uh, so you get external support, maybe from a woman 
uh, who who is serving an executive role at a different company who can mentor you or or a coach. I think if a company is willing to pay for that and say, yes, we understand you're getting into maybe an uncomfortable situation and yes, you will probably face some challenges and we are willing to pay to get you a coach or a mentor. I think it says something about them. I agree. I think that that's a, um, I think that's a great option um, for people. I wonder, I, I'm just, I'm thinking about my clients now and I'm trying to think like, how do I think that they would respond to that? If they, if the answer was, Hey, I'm happy to come be, you know, the first pancake, but I'm going to ask for a support structure. If I, uh, if I'm going to do that for you, I don't think that they would balk. I think that they would probably be okay with it. I think that's not a, a bad idea at all. I like that. Yeah, and I would say do your homework before you actually decide. Uh, check what kind of support you want. Mm-hmm. I, I always uh, suggest to be proactive. If you have like someone that you know, if you heard of that is good and you want to use their services, say, okay, this is what I need from you. I know what kind of support I need. I have this person or this opportunity. Uh, uh, those people can help me. And the cost is X amount of dollars per year. And that's what I need from you. If you come very specific and, and you even solve the problem for them in a, in a way, right? You say, yes, there is something uncomfortable here. I need support. It's going to cost you extra whatever per month or per year. Mm. Well, and I think that, you know, the those costs are not, while not cheap to an individual, are not outlandish for an organization, if that makes sense. Like we're talking yes. about you know, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars, but not tens or hundreds of thousands no. of dollars. And Usually so, it will be in the thousands. Yeah. So I, I, I like that. So what then on the flip side for um, women beginning a career in engineering, what would your advice to them be? Because they have a lot less, you know, negotiating power um, sort of further down the food chain. What, um, what would your advice be to them to, about uh, safety and, and being valued in the workplace? Yeah. First of all, I mean, there are companies who have more women, so definitely look for those. And look for communities and network. There are so many opportunities to connect, right, with Power to Fly and, and with other communities. Find, find other people that you can, you can talk to and network. If, if you can afford, I mean, you can still ask, by the way, to get a mentor. Uh, usually it, it's a few hundred dollars per month. Uh, but if they don't support you in that, either pay for yourself or just network and find some free resources you can use. I think that, you know, those kind of organizations like Women in Technology or um girls who code or, you know, those type, types of groups. I think you're right. Like they, it, it's not just camaraderie. It, it really is kind of a galvanizing force that really can, can give a lot of strength um, to people. Yes. There are a lot of free communities you can join. Yeah. Great. Um, well, that's all fantastic advice. And um, so thank you so much for that. Um, what, um, what have we not talked about that we should have covered? (laughs) 
Wow, I'm trying to think. We talked about so many things. <laughs> I feel like we've been really comprehensive. I feel like the two of us have kind of put the world to rights, you know, in this yeah. conversation the more. So I think that like we're good. Um we have we will have all of the um contact details for you. Now, do you work with clients internationally or specifically in Israel? Or are you happy to jump on a Zoom for somebody in need in the US or as much Actually, as most of my clients are in the US. There you go. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> nowadays, nowadays, I'll tell you what, even in Israel, nowadays, everyone works remote. Mm. And even clients that I work locally, I try to meet with them face-to-face -face once, usually for coffee or something. But then we meet over Zoom because just spending the time on commuting so time consuming that we prefer zoom anyway i i don't disagree i have my own team here is all local to me like we could absolutely find an office and be physically together but my friend you know one of my colleagues is like yeah but i gotta walk the dogs and then if i have to go somewhere i'm gonna get stuck in traffic and she's like i just by the time you've got to get the kids and then that conflicts with the dog schedule. And so we just, we work completely remote. So I totally agree and feel you on that entirely. Um, so the good news is that you're available for anybody um, to reach out for your services and that with your outstanding experience, you're able to help any women going through any of the challenges that we've talked about today. Thank you so much for your time. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Hey, I Want Your Job. For more information on how you can get your own awesome job, visit ONH Consulting at www.onhconsulting.com. We offer incredible resumes, no-nonsense career advice, and real-world tips for landing a job in today's market. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Insta for more insider information. Soon, you'll be hearing us say, I'm Michelle Olivier, and hey, I want your job. <laughs>